The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Jesus said to his disciples, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won over your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you so that every fact may be established on the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, then treat him as you would a Gentile or a tax collector. Amen, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, amen, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything for which you are to pray, it shall be granted to them by my heavenly Father. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus If today you hear his voice, harden not your heart. We repeated that several times as our responsorial psalm, and those are words that the church has repeated on a daily basis for well over a thousand years. In the prayers which the clergy and religious are to pray, the very first prayer of the day is that same psalm. So that emerging from the long silence of night and speaking and listening begin, there's that injunction, today. Today, we must listen to the voice of the Lord. Not tomorrow, not yesterday. But today. And in the now of today, that listening is important. And even as that command is given, we are reminded of something, that the people of God have a hard time listening. And that's the meaning of that mysterious verse in the psalm, the hardening of the heart. Don't be like your ancestors who in the desert after I parted the Red Sea, who in the desert, after I afflicted Egypt with the ten plagues, who in the desert, after I gave the ten commandments, who in the desert, after they had experienced all these things, still refused to listen and accept my word. Don't be like that. The problem is we are all too naturally like that. 
We've heard what we are to do. We've heard how we are to live. We know the basics of the gospel at the very least. And yet, isn't it amazing how easily we can give ourselves permission to lay them aside, forget about them, not preoccupy ourselves with them? And this is why, across the centuries, the church begins its prayer with those words. Because every day we have to be reminded. And it's a curious thing that we are given those words today as the bridge within our readings on this Sunday, this issue of hearing the voice of the Lord and the injunction, don't harden your heart. And then we have this cluster of readings which speaks about our relationships with one another. The first reading from the prophet Ezekiel is the well-known oracle of the watchman. And the Lord speaking to Ezekiel is reminding him and all of those like him who have been raised to a certain ministry and a certain degree of trust that he is accountable for that mission. And therefore, there is a way in which he is accountable for the spiritual state of others as well. And we hear something like that, and that gives us pause, because I've got enough trouble taking care of me. What do you mean I'm responsible for somebody else? But note what the Lord says. I've given you the mission to speak my word. And if you don't, then you're responsible for the actions of those who could have been different but aren't because you were silent. What a remarkable statement that is. It's not that you make their choices for them, but if you do not give them what they need to choose rightly, well, then whose fault is it that they choose wrongly? Because it's not just theirs. It's yours. And so the first injunction in the reading is to the prophet. Don't you harden your heart by not speaking forth what I have given you to share. And we might sit there and hear that and say, well, that's all well and good, but I don't have that job. I'm not in charge of the people. Well, I guess to a certain extent I am which is a sobering reminder to the clergy that we do have to be about clearly giving witness to the truth because you have a right to it. But the other piece of that is there's a fundamentally prophetic element to all Christian living. Whether it's one who is formally raised by ordination to do that publicly, or whether it is that more quiet, but necessary living, which is less public, less open, but equally, if not more, important. Because while not everybody is given a word to announce, everybody is given a life to live. And how we live gives witness to the truth that should be rooted within us. And so we are all accountable, each and every one of us, for the example we give for the example we set. 
And that is an important reminder that it is not just the single prophet, but the members of the people. And this is the point Jesus stretches as he speaks to his disciples. Note he doesn't speak of them about mere individuals, but as a body that must give testimony, must maintain its good order, and must bear witness. And note what that means. If my living is no different from the living of a non-Christian, what am I really announcing? I'm announcing that Jesus makes no difference. I'm announcing that the gospel doesn't really matter. I'm announcing that none of this is important and it's all a matter of going through the motions however many Sundays in a row I go to church. And when we put it that way, that's sobering and arguably disturbing. But the issue is then recognizing that there is a fundamental sacramentality about Christian life. And if you remember from when you were learning catechism, sacraments have two parts. There's a visible part, a part that we can see, a part that we can experience, a part that we can touch, a part that's physical, material, palpable. And that is the sign of the greater reality that is present that we can't see, that we can't physically touch and experience in the same way, but is actually the heart of the matter. And so, for example, when a baby is baptized, we see the water, we hear it fall. We usually hear the little one cry because he notices the water too. The pouring of the water, which is physical, is the outward sign that something that we can't see with our eyes is also happening. And that at that moment, the grace and the life of Jesus Christ are coming into that little one. Note, the water is necessary, but the great reality is what happens at that moment the water is poured. And in a few minutes here at Mass, we will have bread and wine on the altar that we can see with our eyes that we can taste, that we can touch. Note our senses can experience all of these things. And yet the reality, the full reality, is greater than bread and wine. Because here is also the presence and the life of Jesus Christ. That our eyes don't see physically. That our ears don't hear physically. That our hands don't touch in an exactly physical way and yet he is here, and that is the greater reality. And note, the breaking of the bread, the drinking of the wine, all of this is the sign by which we know we are receiving Jesus Christ. If we say that about the sacraments that we celebrate, we have to recognize that this is true also about ourselves. The world doesn't see Jesus Christ, the world sees you, and the world sees me. Note, and so if the world is going to see and experience Jesus at all, it has to be by means of those who bear his life and his goodness and his presence inside. You know, when we look in the mirror in the morning, we don't see the face of Jesus looking back at us. And yet, by how we speak, how we act, how we relate to one another, 
What are we to communicate? The presence and the goodness of Christ. Note how wonderful that is. And this is why, then, the Lord speaks to his church. The Lord speaks to his prophet and says, don't harden your heart. Because there is a matter of responding and moving with the truth and the goodness you have been given. Because that is the only way others can experience it. All of a sudden, we realize we have a great responsibility for the world around us including a responsibility to the non-believing world. Because how do others come to know Christ if those who bear his presence within them don't show him forth? What a remarkably powerful truth that is. And then it's within this context now that the Lord gives us this teaching of forgiveness. And note again how he begins with a fundamental reality that we all know too well. If your brother sins against you, is there anybody here who's never been offended by another person? Raise your hand because you're the luckiest person in the world. And so note, note, the Lord now is giving us this teaching about what to do when we are wronged. And on the one hand, he's speaking about what to do when we are publicly and seriously wronged as a community, but he is also speaking about what happens when we are publicly and seriously wronged as individuals. But the context for all of this is not what do I do when I feel hurt. The context for all of this is that I have a fundamental responsibility to be concerned for the well-being even of the brother who has wronged me. And everything sounds different when I start there. This is why we have the reading from St. Paul that says, owe nothing to anyone, including the one that hurts you, except charity, except love, except concern. And then out of that, do everything else. Because think about it. If I act simply out of feeling wrong, I'm going to act out of anger. I am going to act out of resentment, disappointment, fear, outrage, a sense of being violated, wounded, and cheated. And we all know where that goes. There's next to never a good outcome that comes from that. And this is the way the world around us acts. The world around us claims an easy and ready right to be offended and outraged, and then let outrage be my rule. But that is not a Christian response. That has never been a Christian response. The Christian, rather, has that other injunction, begin with charity, begin with concern even for the one who has done you wrong. And what a remarkably powerful but difficult perspective that is. And there's no sugarcoating it. That's not easy. And, that's, and because it's not easy, our hearts naturally harden themselves against it. And so now the Lord says, if your brother has wronged you, know what he says. Have a conversation, just you and him. In other words, before you tell the rest of the world your tale of woe. But boy, we do that, don't we? 
The minute I feel upset, everybody near me has to hear the story. And it's amazing how the story amplifies. And it's amazing how the word of the wrong also propagates. Well, I heard from so-and-so that her husband or his wife did X, Y, and Z. Could you believe it? And know what happens. When we act that way, we are bringing shame to somebody else. When we act that way, the concern is not for the well-being of the other person. The concern is me to vent and me to get that little bit of revenge that comes when I can simply name how bad somebody else is. And this is not to trivialize the fact that sometimes we can be greatly wronged. And so the issue is not if you're in an abusive situation, pretend it's not abusive. The issue here, though, is most of our relationships don't rise to that level. Most of the wrongs we receive don't rise to that level. And we're the ones who often make them worse by how we navigate the situation. Because we have ready recourse to our anger, our frustration, and that becomes the source of our acting, and it begins to define our relationship. And so know what Jesus says. At least try to name for the other person what it is they've done. How often do we get in fights and we're yelling at each other and nobody even knows the reason? How often do we find ourselves in arguments that are based on something that happened three days ago that one or maybe both of us have forgotten about, but we're still feeling, and we never name the issue? And so one of the things Jesus is saying is, if there is an issue, and you really do care about this person, try and find a way to name it. And so note, he's not saying that this is a recipe for fault finding. He's not saying, look around the congregation and spy out all the wrongs you think people are doing, and then go to them and point it out. He's saying, if there is a real woundedness, a real hurt that you've experienced, and you have a real relationship with this person, then be real. Don't just be angry. And without judgment, simply name, you've hurt me in this way. When you speak to me in this way. Sometimes the way we speak to one another also creates the problem. Because we can easily speak in a way that begins with blame. You hurt me. And the wound I felt might have been unintentional. And the person all of a sudden gets defensive. What do you mean? I didn't want to do that. And so sometimes just learning the simple skill of, you might not understand, but when you use these kinds of words, this is what I feel. When I speak that way, notice the difference? I'm not beginning with, it's your fault. I'm not beginning with, you're a bad person. I'm not beginning with, you wanted to do me harm. And what that does is it gives the other person a chance not to be defensive. It gives the other person a chance maybe to say, I didn't know that, and I would like to try and change. And that's what the Lord means when he says, and if he apologizes, you've won him over. You have a chance to start again, because real love wants to change when it knows it was wrong. 
Or if there's a refusal, we also know what's there. What I thought was love maybe isn't as deep as I assumed it was. But note what the Lord is really saying. Begin first with your concern for the person and the relationship that you have with him or her. And act out of the concern. Because the relationship is worth maintaining, we hope. And then the Lord says, only, only if that goes south do you maybe sound out somebody else and say, am I the one that's off base here? But note how gentle this really is until he gets to the point of saying, but if the heart is hardened, if the heart is unrepentant, if the person refuses to change and is going to keep choosing to hurt you, at that point, at that point, distance yourself. But notice how late that comes in the process. The Lord is saying, do what you can not to get there. Because we live in a world where that distancing happens overnight. That distancing happens so readily and so quickly. We drive each other away, push each other away, find reasons to break off friendships and relationships as if such things have no value. And so the Lord says, be careful with that. And so note, the issue is always I'm concerned. And if something is really wrong here, I would like to see it stop. If someone's life is really off course, it's not just a matter of finding fault, it's a matter of trying to get the person help. It's a matter of trying to guide them back to a way that is healthy and good for them. Note again the difference. When the Lord speaks of these things, he's also speaking of the fact that he's going to be nailed to a cross. And he's going to forgive the guy who swung that hammer. He's going to be laughed at wearing a crown of thorns. And he's going to forgive those who have mocked him. So the Lord isn't speaking empty words. He's giving us a difficult but an important teaching. And why is the Lord going to forgive that person? Because he's come to save that person. Because he doesn't want that one to be lost. This is the attitude out of which Jesus is speaking. And this is the importance here. And so this is why he continues this by saying, understand, when two or three of you are together in something, and are together in your prayer and in your concern, especially your concern for somebody else, heaven's going to listen to you. Heaven's going to hear you. And so you say that prayer. But note how he gives that teaching of whatever you ask two or three of you together that you agree on. Notice how he, it follows his teaching about how you handle the one who's hurt you. How you handle the one who's off course. How you handle that one that you don't want to lose. Because Jesus came to this earth precisely because he didn't want to lose any single one of us. And note what that says then about the church. You do your best, he says to his people, to hold on to each other. You do your best to hold on to your members. You don't look for reasons to tell somebody you don't belong. You don't look for reasons to kick somebody out. You do what you can to keep people in. And you recognize, unfortunately, that's not going to work with everybody. But you try.
you try. Because we're all accountable for the trying. We're all also accountable for our individual choices, including those we try to help. But if we don't try to help, if we don't make the move, if we don't make the effort, we can't just wash our hands and say, well, he's gone. That's what the Lord wants to stress. Because we're so valuable to him, he wants us to recognize that we are also valuable to one another. In that end, it is a very, very beautiful teaching. And what happens now is he's going to be here on this altar. And however hardened my heart might have been to him even this morning, he's still here. Note how wonderful that is. Sunday after Sunday, whatever I've done wrong, he's still here. And Sunday after Sunday, he's going to come here to the front of the sanctuary, and he's going to wait for everyone to come forward. Because that's what he does. And that's who he is. And he gives us this difficult word to open up our hearts first to him and opening to him to one another. Because what we receive in this sacrament we call communion, don't we? Think about that for a second. Because what we receive in this sacrament is not simply communion with Jesus Christ in a private and personal way. We also receive communion with one another. That's the other part of what happens in the sacrament. Our communion is with him, and because it is with him, it is with all of us. In Christ, we are all united. In Christ, we are all one, because we are his body. This is why St. Augustine so beautifully says, as you come forward, receive who you are. Become who you receive. And at the end of Mass, we leave as the body of Christ. Hopefully, at the end of Mass, more united than we were when we gathered. But note how wonderful that is, this idea that the closer we come to Jesus, the more we do come to value one another, despite our differences, despite the different ways we might not get fully along. But the important thing is that we are saved and we belong together. Amen.